0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 86 of K9's Talking Sets. This episode is a sit down with my friend, Forrest Mickey. Many of you know Forrest Mickey from the Healer's Toolbox, which is a video on Leerberg. Many of you have seen him with Michael Ellis. He's an extremely talented trainer. An amazing dog person and just a great guy all around. He has a great diverse background, which we talk about on this episode. We go into a lot of different things. I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you guys like it. Leave comments. Let me know what you guys think when you hear it. Please like and subscribe to our podcast and all the different podcast forums that are out there. Also, coming up, we have. Some of our seminars, I'll be in Australia this summer. I'm doing a really special one in the Sydney area with Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. Make sure you find them on the internet. You can find Glenn Cook or you just go to FordK9.com, go to our events page, click on the seminar there, or just go to the Canine Paradigm podcast. Uh, you can find them on Facebook. Anyway. Get a hold, sign up with Glenn Cook for that seminar I'm doing in Sydney, which will be at the tail end of July. Also, there's another seminar I'm doing in Australia, Puppy Cognition. Myself and Natalie are doing a Puppy Cognition with Becky Thomas of Ultimate Canine. Also go find her on the internet, Uh, Ultimate Canine. She's located in the Sunshine Coast area, but it's the only place we're doing a Puppy Cognition seminar in Australia this year so go find that one and then lastly our seminars in the United States we're doing a canine um, skill development seminar at Next Level Kennels in Henderson North Carolina that's the beginning of June first weekend of June and then the middle of June I'll be in Cato Parish Louisiana go find that uh, all of that's on our website at k 9com you can contact the Cato County uh, Parish Sheriff's Office the canine program I have these various links on my uh, social medias. Again, thank you guys so much for the support for the Canine's Talking Sense podcast. Thank you guys for always coming out to these various seminars that I'm doing. I love you guys. I can't thank you enough. And let's now get into the episode. All right. Forest, welcome to the show. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Cameron.
0: <laughs> so this is a fun one because I started this off with some questions that I sent out uh, to the internet universe to see, you know, what stuff people want to know about you. Plus, you and I have been now out here for a few weeks in uh, the Michael Ellis School for Dog Trainers, as we got our little studio now set up here, um, just talking dog stuff. So. I kind of want to just carry that on some more, Um, but I also want to get to know you. So how did you find your way into dogs?
1: I grew up with dogs. I think a lot of people have the same, similar story, right? You grow up with dogs Mm -hmm. and um, you're interested in them in Mm -hmm. a way that's more than just having a pet dog. I was always curious with the dogs that we had growing up, um, like teaching them things, you know, like what motivated them to do the things that they would do. And uh, I, I was close with my brother and sister. We would spend a lot of time in the woods. We mm-hmm. lived near some woods. So there would always be like a dog with us if we're building a tree fort or doing something. And so that was just important to my upbringing is having a four-legged dog next to us mm-hmm. while we're doing things. Um, but I was always interested in some you know I didn't really know dog training, but you know you have some treats or a bit of your sandwich or whatever, and the dog learns to do something for it. And you give it to him, and so off you go. Um, I didn't pursue dog training professionally until I was twenty six or twenty seven years old. So I went to um, I did Army boot camp. I was in the Army National Guard after uh, high school, okay um, and then, I uh, was an academic counselor um, when I finished my undergraduate degree, so I went to college. And then I did a master's degree. And uh, it was at about 26 that I, um, and I was dog training on the side. Um, In uh, my undergraduate work in college, I had this associate professor that was a really cool gal, and she'd talk about her dog a lot and how it drug her around on the leash. And I thought, (laughs) well, I could help you with that. And so I did help her with that. And then she was uh, must have been happy that her dog didn't pull her out anymore. So she passed me around the department a little bit. Um, and that's the first time I ever took income okay. training dogs. Was uh, she didn't like boost my grades or anything, but she did <laughs> give me some money. Yeah. Uh, and so that was like a little side hustle that I was doing. Uh, but I never um, thought about you know pursuing it professionally. It, it didn't seem like um, a thing then as much as it as it is now. So it's definitely a thing now. There might be some obedience classes or something you could find, you know, locally at your dog club or something, but it wasn't like some individual out there that's off offering trading experiences. Uh, but yeah, there was a time when I was 26, I was kind of tired of what I was doing. Um, and I had thought a lot about doing some dog stuff. Uh, my dad and I built a um, a building on the side of his property that he had. So he kind of allowed me to take this this three acres of of land that he had next to their house up a building. We put some kennels in there. It was a nice open space that I could train in. And, um, and then I, I went off to a dog training school, Tom Rose school and uh, learned some things there, came back. And uh, that's when it really began for me. Okay.
0: So let's go back a little bit. What was your military career? Like how long did you serve? What was your MOS? Like you, you kind of mentioned it, but, um, just describe what the military like was life like was for you and things like that.
1: Yeah, well, Army National Guard, uh, so it's state funded. Sure. Um, but I did go to Army boot camp at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh eleven Charlie, so I was a mortarman, so infantry. Yeah. My brother was eleven Bravo. Um, they do uh like four by two contracts when you when you join the National Guard, at least in Wisconsin at the time. So you get four years and then for two years you're on an inactive ready reserve list. Um and I really liked boot camp. Uh could do a lot of push-ups. <laughs> so they liked me, my pen, my like handwriting was good, so I was the scribe. Where uh, um, I've heard, oh, in your class you were calling people scribes, the ones yes. that were like taking notation, and so um, that brought me back a little bit because okay. they'd always yell "scribe" and I'd have to run down and then I would have to write things on the board. Um, but I loved it. I loved the weapons training. I loved the camaraderie of it. Um, it opened my world up a lot. I hadn't been exposed to um, like different people from different walks of life mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I had there. And that was lovely. Like, yeah. I appreciated that as much as anything. And I took a lot of pride in um, the, the job that I did in, uh, in boot camp. I, and to be perfectly honest, I joined uh, the, the national guard cause I didn't have money for college and I wanted it. Um, I wasn't, um, you know, gung ho for anything beyond getting my college paid for and not sure coming out without debt. And so, um, I was, uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia, the 30th AG processing center where you get all your shots and your boots and your stuff mm-hmm. when, um, nine 11 happened. And so, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of information at that time. Eventually we, we figured out what was going on, but it did kind of change, it shifted things within, um, you know, the whole military, military organization after that, it was kind of peacetime when I got in, you know, I thought I was going to sit around mm-hmm. playing cards and the weapons and hanging fire.
0: But yeah. Did you deploy? Nope, never had to deploy. Did they require you to do National Guard type things far as far as like responding to an emergency within the state,
1: or did you guys not really have much where you were at? Yeah, by the time that my time was up, um, they were increasing funding to our um, our unit, or maybe our brigade, um, in anticipation of going and relieving somebody else um, overseas. <laughs> And we were at 110% capacity, wow. so there was no stop-lossing that was going hmm. on, which was unfortunate. And, um, yeah, it just kind of ran its course. So yeah. I, the, the unit that I was with eventually did get deployed for um, six to eight months, something like that, um, a year or two later. So.
0: And you said you really enjoyed your time serving. And I would say people who may not know you all that well and judging the book by its cover— you would not look at you at first and go, That's a military guy, you know, when they see you. Yeah. How is that life for you being who you are and then the military life? Was it an easy fit for you? Was it, was there some struggles dealing with the man kind of concept that the military comes with, the rank and structure, and then versus being more free spirited and, or did you just say hey look i'm adaptable i can do this
1: yeah i'm adaptable i think um it would be a tough pill for me to swallow now yeah i think uh, at the time um i loved it i loved boot camp uh, i liked the challenge of it mm-hmm. i liked ait training afterwards so um i think it was because i was learning so much about um, you know myself and really cool stuff. The military, like the training can be really cool. It was intense, mm-hmm. um, in boot camp. Uh, the physicality I loved. And then, uh, I had a sense of pride about it. So I, yeah. I looked up to my, I had great drill instructors. I looked up to them. So I wanted to, uh, you know, be seen as hardworking, mm-hmm. um, you know, a good soldier to sure. them. So that was cool. Uh, the afterwards in, um, National Guards afterwards, it was a a much slower pace, you know, and you'd gather on the weekends and do your thing and you'd have your two weeks and the number that you'd go out and do stuff. And I liked the two weeks training that we'd do because it felt like we were really getting at it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would come home from college on my weekend duty and then, um, you know, we'd do our weekend and it was kind of just a slow paced gathering around there. We were, some of it was redundant, cleaning things that were already cleaned and going through training manuals. And um, and so some of that... (laughs) You know, what? wasn't the most sure. thrilling for me, but it was cool, man. I've had yeah. some great people and, uh, I don't talk about it a lot. Uh, yeah. It was kind of uneventful, you know, I, I did it honestly for the college money. And so it served its purpose there. But, um, when I look back on it, the, uh, the earlier part of it, especially was nice for me.
0: Yeah. yeah. So tell me about college, like what's your degree in, what was that like, <laughs> And, and how much of that degree do you use today?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I realize why you're asking me these questions. I don't just uh, talk so much about like my past or those things. I know yeah. they affect who we are. And, sure. Uh, maybe people are interested in it. Of course they are. Sure. So I went to um, University of Milwaukee and I got an undergraduate degree in communications. And there was a lot of, um, it was kind of the, I had the sense because of, Because there were a lot of basketball players and other sport athletes that were in that program, (laughs) I had the sense that it was kind of like one of the throwaway degrees, but I pursued it because I really enjoyed, uh, like the content of it. So, uh, communications degree. And then after, after that, I did a master's degree in business administration Mm. an MBA. And, um, that was paid for too, by the school. And, 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 uh, yeah, then I went on to work.
0: So. I mean, obviously you've gotten to use some of that, uh, education and what you've done and what you've built because you're more than just a dog trainer. Mm -hmm. You know, you've, uh, gone on and done other things in which we'll get to coming up. But so like you mentioned, while you're in college, you started helping out with uh, a professor and then some of the networking friends that came from the dog training. And that took you to Tom Rowe school as like Mm -hmm. your first foray into, I'm going to do this professionally. what would you, how would you describe, um, that time as you were learning to become a trainer? you went from like learning stuff on your own to then going, okay, I'm going to do this professionally. So I'm gonna to go to a school to do it. What was that like? What was, you know, what did you see during those times? Mm-hmm.
1: How long ago was that? Mm-hmm. I was going to say when you were talking about, um, like the schooling I've done and how I use that, I think there's a bit of irony. because I feel like I'm about the least business minded person that you could come <laughs> across. I think I almost work hard not not to be to be too business thing. yeah. um and I loved that that schooling like particularly the graduate program. It it really taught me that like if if there's something you want to learn, you can go out and get it especially right now. Mm-hmm. Know, like all the information's at your fingertips. You had to work harder back then and there were standards to, you know, like what you were pulling up and taking in and referencing and that sort of thing, but um, um, yeah. So that's just a funny thing. Like, I feel like I forget about that, that part of the, sure. That's the appeal of dog training too is for me, it's, uh, it, it has a lot to do with self-expression mm-hmm. as well. Like I'm a principled dog trainer. I'm always interested in what's going on. I'm a hardworking uh, dog trainer in my own way. Uh, but there's an artistic quality to it that I am, I'm always hanging on to. Yeah. To. Uh, the Tom Rose school I chose because, um, it was the, I w- wanted to go someplace where I could immerse myself in it. I was looking to leave Wisconsin, um, not cause I didn't like Wisconsin mm-hmm. or, or my family or my situation. Cause I love all of that, but you know, you like to go someplace and sure. experience it and it's new. Yeah. So that was part of the appeal is it's a new experience. Um, there weren't any other schools really that I found at the time. This was in 2007 so michael had just started his school but it wasn't or he hadn't quite yet gotcha i think when i left the tom rose program he Mm -hmm. had um but so it was like basically the only show in town uh as far as you know like what i found when i was Mm -hmm. and so and i could go there and i talked with tom a couple times before making a decision and i went and uh, i connected with one of uh, a student that was there ahead of me can't remember his name anymore, but he had this border collie and he had sent Mm -hmm. me some videos and showed me all this cool stuff that he was doing. And he was kind of living my dream at the time. I was going to get a border collie and have it doing all this cool stuff. And and when I went to the school, I did get a border collie and did a bunch of cool stuff. um, I did his longer version of the program and I loved that experience too. Um, So I don't know what the the school is so Mm -hmm. much anymore, uh, but I was interested in learning more about precision obedience protection work mm-hmm. something that I hadn't ever experienced or, or seen um, order protection. Okay. And, uh, and then tracking. Yeah. You know? And that was pretty much the program. It was, there were some other things around it, but he had an awesome business model at the time. I don't know if you know too much about. No. Okay. So he had a school that me and others paid to go to, to learn from him. And then along with that school program, He had a training business, and so people paid to have their dogs come there and be trained Uh, by uh, him, which was actually us. Yeah, and that was the most valuable part of that education. I think is I I trained something like twenty six, you know, pet dogs, if you want want to say it, during the time that I was there, Mm. and it involved keeping the dogs there for at the time he had two week or one month programs, and so we would um, train them up. We worked you know, with them every day, multiple times a day. That was a big part of the program. And then at the end, you know, handing the dog back off to the people. And so learning how to, uh, to do that, mm-hmm. to, to pass what you've taught on to the dog onto the person. And that was cool. That was invaluable, yeah. but, um, he was smart, right? Because yeah. I'm paying to be there to train those dogs that are, and being, then they're paying, <laughs> they're being paid to train. So it's cool. I respected that about y- sure.
0: No, I mean, it's like you said, I I've seen the same thing in the, uh, uh, like law enforcement community. Mm. Um, one of the bigger kennels, United States does the same thing. You know, he has his trainer schools and the trainer schools are prepping the dogs that are already sold or going to be sold to Mm. the clients that are coming in to buy dogs. So he's got paid labor. (laughs) But like you said, the, the thing that's, that was valuable in both uh, situations, what you went through, and what those individuals do when they go to that school is they get their hands on more dogs. And dogs are different levels and different drive aspects and motivations and so forth. So it cuts your teeth, obviously. You yeah. know. How long were you at Tom's for? Five months. Okay. Yeah. And you got, how many dogs you, you said you
1: did? 20-something? Yeah, 26 pet dogs. That's a lot of dogs. Yeah, it is. In, in yeah. a
0: five-month period. Yeah. So that, that gets your hands dirty. Yeah. So... Yeah. The what would you say is was the most challenging aspect of going through a program like that, where you're away for five months, working a bunch of different dogs? I'm sh- I'm assuming there's a lot of other trainers there with you guys at the same time.
1: Yeah, we had twenty plus, I think twenty three or twenty two people that were in the program. Um, met some lovely people that I still have friendships with today. You said that you were going to um, traveling again to Switzerland yeah, yeah. and. Um, a dear friend of mine that lives in Switzerland, his son is my godchild. I oh. met him at that program. Wow. His name is Etienne. So if you see him, say hi. Okay. Yeah. Um, I am. So the the challenging part, probably it wasn't so much of a challenge as it was an opportunity for me and even a confidence booster when I look back at it. But, um, you know, the program was was laid out and here's a path for you to follow by which you can train a dog. And I did like that. You and I have talked to Michael about mm-hmm. things like this. Like, um, you know, I first met Michael. Um, there was no way that I would have said like he's got this system for mm-hmm. training dogs. Yeah. The thing that I loved about him is uh, that he had so much and could choose the things that the dog needed at the time, and uh, and it was just good principled training. Yeah. And um, but it wasn't like he was doing the same thing for everyone. And so here was you know this this laid out. Um, curriculum for training a dog. I had a a border collie. I still have him actually. He's a very old guy, (laughs) but um, there were certain things in the program that weren't for him. Mm. And um, Tom was good about, he was good about two things. He was good about saying, Hey, you should stay the course with this because um, it will turn out okay on the other side. But he was also good if you, if you, if you recognize that something wasn't for you and for your dog. And I had enough, I guess, self-confidence at the time to to say like, hey, I think I'm going to take a different route with this. Is that okay? And so that might have been the challenging thing was um, finding my own way in certain areas and then um, not letting that uh, be a distraction from the class, mm-hmm. from the, the people that were going through. And that involves some conversations, too, with the leadership there, just saying, hey, like, uh, can I train this a different way? I'm not saying to other people they should do it this way, but I just feel it would be the best thing for my dog. And they were lovely about that, of course.
0: Yeah. What was – so they you guys went through, let's say, an obedience module of training. They they showed you various techniques of obedience training. And then you also mentioned – they had some protection stuff too. Mm-hmm. And then some detection. Mm-hmm.
1: What
0: was your, what was your favorite out of those phases when you
1: were going through that training? The detection stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, the, the protection wasn't, there wasn't that much of it going sure. on. And there was like, I think I saw two people in a bite suit, you know, while I was there, it was mostly with a sleeve and Tom okay. Rose, Schutzen guy. Sure. Um, but the protection wasn't really something that was going on a lot. Uh, there wasn't an active club there at the time that was like doing anything. Mhm. Well, there were some neat trainers that would come around uh, on occasion that had dogs and they were doing the stuff. But um, at the school, there wasn't so much of it. And there was just a bunch of different dogs. There's collies and Labs and Pointers and a few Malinois mm-hmm. and stuff. So yeah. it wasn't the emphasis of the program at all, but detection certainly was. And I loved it. I loved that.
0: Yeah. Well, talk tell us like how did what was detection like there? How did they go about it? Was it sport-related, like nose work, birch, anise clove kind of things? Or did they also go into narcotics,
1: explosives, and so on? Yeah, it was narcotics. Uh, So here's how it went. I I love this. And to this day, I still even like hanging with you and seeing um, how neatly you break things down, uh, which is really attractive to me, the way that you teach um, detection, uh, because like we – the way that I would approach obedience or training my dog for something non-detection is the way that you approach training detection. Like you isolate Mm -hmm. these, you push the dog into certain concepts that it needs and once you have those. You can isolate Mm -hmm. actual uh, behaviors that you're trying to teach that are um, operant. And and Mm -hmm. then you combine these things when, when enough of them are strong and you make a stronger whole. And so that's, that's how we, that's how I make training. I think (laughs) so. But we did field searches, right? so, I remember Amos, my border colleague, mm-hmm. eight weeks old. He liked, uh, and I had this yellow elite canine ball that was hollowed out in the middle, and he liked it. And right away, we had got methylbenzoate, so mm-hmm. pseudo cocaine formula, mm-hmm. and I put a couple drops on it. And I remember just tossing it in front of them in some grass and letting them go. And he would go get his toy, right? His yeah. toy that always smelled like cocaine. Sure. <clears throat> and then eventually, they get, you know, they're eager for their toy and they they like to go and fetch it. You start hiding it or you toss it and you disorient them and you expand the difficulty Mm -hmm. of that. And, you know, the whole time I'm just kicking back, watching a dog work. Mm -hmm. And the, the one thing that we were careful about was not to let them fail. So like make too big of a leap and sure, or something that they don't believe that they're ever going to be able to find it. And so I liked being outside. I liked having a dog do something without me, and I liked that I was accomplishing a lot within a simple, natural feeling setup, um, as far as I understood at yeah. the time, uh, which was equating, you know, the thing that I want him to, to have this independent, I was interested in that, like he could, that he could search independent of me and it, it kind of automatically took me out of the picture mm-hmm. um, and had this dog that was really self-assured in what he was doing and didn't need me. I liked being outside doing that. I liked accomplishing a lot of things in a simple setup and then. Um it was quite easy when we started to um orchestrate it more, like make make it more of an organized experience. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, there at the point where Amos was, you know, conditioned to scent early on to it, I could take one of those elite canine balls and chuck it into a two-acre field, like while he was, you know, in his crate waiting or something, and then bring him out and tell him to search. And, you know, that dude just had it. There wasn't much I had to do to for him to believe in his ability to mm-hmm. to find that thing and also to find his own casting pattern and to to work a room or work a space in a way that I didn't have to influence too much and that was neat. At the time we were um setting up these um, like coins or rings, these flat rings okay. um and we were tying uh like ribbon to them okay. so that the dog could see and so you'd take these rings and you'd place them out here here and they just needed to be weighted right and so you would put food by them so here are these washers and here's these ribbons so that the dog can see them and they learn that there's food by them and so we would set you know five of them here going down and then on the left you would stagger them and set five and so you'd point the dog it's almost like blind searching IGP or something and they would go run over and get their food and all you're doing is drawing attention to these ribbons and saying that these are something you should look for and then when the dog gets it we would expand them Right. And so the idea is I could cast my dog to that. Mm -hmm. And that would be something that would invite him in and I would cast my dog that way, cast them. So I could run up a field and it really felt like almost blind searches. And at some point along the way, you'd put the scent, right? Because you don't want them just, you know, running sprinting, You want them to understand that they're actually supposed to be searching with it. So I didn't have to do too much of that work with the boar collie because he just kind of had his own way. And I understood that. So that was a little bit of an unnecessary thing for me. But I saw a lot of dogs that benefited because they didn't they didn't know how to cast or they didn't know how to uh, reference their person and, and understand that if I point mm-hmm. this way, you should run out. And so that was cool, too. Yeah. Real searches. It was and like it, the beginning of directionals, basically. Yeah. You guys were teaching
0: directionals um, with a target, with a reinforcer there. Yep. And when your hand went this way or that way, it uh, created that cue to help – that, like you said, it sounds like you would later pair this process to, well, now there are the target's going to be hidden in this environment, and maybe one of those directionals that you're
1: giving will lead them to... Exact. Odor. Okay. okay. So you just combine those two things. And then Tom had this big um, rock wall at his school. The school is kind of built on this hill or this incline. And so this main building was built up higher and kind of built into this this incline and the parking lot was below, and then he had another building below, but he had this retention wall that was a big rock wall. And we were using Bill Jack a lot for training, like the mushy stuff. You yep. know? And, um, Is it true you can't get that stuff like this side of the Mason-Dixon line? or something.
0: The, the Bill Jack? Yeah. I got some of it here just the other day, actually. so uh,
1: It used to be that way, I think.
0: Did California ban the, uh, something in Bill Jack was
1: yeah. not allowed or something? I don't know. No, I
0: actually just got some the other day, so ironically, I, I found it.
1: Yeah, so. cool. Maybe this this was back then. Sure. Maybe it wasn't as available. So we would take that Bill Jack and we'd stick it on a rock, mm. right? And then we'd bring the dog out, and we'd have him on a leash, and we would point at the Bill Jack. And so they'd eat. Uh huh, And that's how we developed a reference for like helping the dog. Sure. We needed to. And then he had, um, you know, the, the tubes on the wall mm-hmm. that you could drop a ball down and he had, um, like a remote that he had taken actually off of a car, okay. uh, like an unlocking remote. And so he had a mechanism in one of the tubes, uh, that if, you know, the dog went and found the scent yep. right, that had that in there, you could click and the ball would drop. And so that's how we got our indications. Gotcha. So the dog was really good at searching, Um uh, really believed that, you know, they're looking for their toy, which always smelt like odor. Sure. And um, so that was ingrained in them mm-hmm. and strong. And then we developed that indication later on just by using those tubes. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of it felt really easy and fun. You yeah. Know,
0: that it, point it, and there's something that I know that attracts both of us to dogs, which is the the natural aspect, mm-hmm. watching them do something natural with collaboration with us and there's a beauty in that that um really shines in detection because just like you said a few minutes ago you have to just let the dog work you know there's it, you're out of it you know you, you're there to help a little bit but the dog is the one in charge mm. you know we're sitting back and watching it um the aspect which i'm curious when you guys took, taking what you did naturally the hunting aspects the searching um when you, how did you guys start developing I'm, I'm assuming this was a sit response when your dog would find odor talk a little bit how about how you guys did that back then building the sit was it separate from odor did it happen at odor how did you guys go about doing it the we, sit
1: yeah they weren't that it didn't need to be a sit okay could have just been standing and freezing okay. there mm-hmm. And then the the next step we took when we stopped using the ball dropper is occasionally we'd go up and pitch the ball between the ears. And so we were playing that game. Mm-hmm. And what was the, you mentioned the name the other day of somebody that kind of had developed maybe that method of dropping the ball between the ears. Or coming
0: up. Oh, well, so there's, I, I typically share how detection evolved and you can tell me if this was what you remembered. I was just saying, you know, when I first started, everything was scratch alert. That was what I would call 1.0. Yeah. Uh, 2.0 is when Kenny Licklider, to me, really got the sit-stare really popular, and that was tossing the ball over their yeah. head and um, or reaching into a box and using your hand to pop the toy out of the box. that The toy was already in there with the yeah. odor. Um, then 2.5 is what I would call where Randy Hare came in. That was and- the name that?
1: was tossed around. A
0: bit. Yes. And in, and in that time frame, the early two thousands is when uh, Randy Hare was much more popular with what he showed the detection dog community was, Hey, look, there could be toys everywhere. Yeah. And the only place that your dog should engage or react is when you bring the reward right to where the odors at theory being that the reward location at odor is powerful, which we all agree upon. Yeah. Um, what like i said why i call it 2.5 is because he showed us that we could teach the dog communication of searching and detecting despite major distractors which at that point hadn't really happened yet we were still the level of trickery that dog handlers would do and still do to this day is trying to hide the toy and all this kind of stuff but randy kind of put a light on there said hey Hold your toy in your hand. Do anything you want. Throw tennis balls all over the ground, all this kind of stuff. And the dog still had to work because the only place it could get reward was at the location of odor. Um, And then, of course, what I call 3.0 now is the use of condition reinforcers to communicate that very similar thing. And the beauty of the condition reinforcer is I can be back here. I can be so much. But all those and
1: and Randy here was definitely a contributor, I think. Sounds like Randy Hare liberated a lot of us in yes. a sense from yeah. some of the got us out of the magic show aint and the ass yeah. stuff that <laughs> was going on. So we would come up, you know, like I like with Amos, I'd come up and dump the ball between his ears, right? That was what we were aiming for. And he was often looking at it. Sure. But um he did develop a sit kind of on his own. Um, mm-hmm. but also when we were doing high fines like we got to do hide stuff, he would just stand on his toes and point at it and uh <clears throat> That was just really enjoyable for me because the dog kind of got it. And I still think back on, um, I loved the field search aspect of it, like the power of the searching and plus pairing that right away with finding something that Mm -hmm. you want them to find eventually. And and,
0: uh, anyway, what would you say was as you developed your skill as a trainer and being the intellectual type, like dissecting things as you were learning, what did you see as like, hmm, I, I wish this was better in the detection aspect when you were going through that? Was there anything that stood out like, because at that point, it's all you knew, but was there something in you that you're like, hmm, I like it, but.
1: <laughs> I don't know that, <laughs> that I'm an intellectual <laughs> trainer. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I do want to understand what the hell I'm doing, and uh, it almost feels a bit defensive, in a way, like a defense mechanism. Like, I certainly, there was a time I was reading a lot of books, and I've been lucky to be around really smart people that talk about dogs and in a way that makes sense to me. And I've always wanted to understand the why of what I'm doing. Um, and so I think that's, you know, as much time as I spent working with the dog, I've also tried to like grasp the language and understand that that stuff, and it just helps you have conversations mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're wanting giving giving what you have to people, it helps you give it in a better way the thing we were talking about that space between when the dog indicates and when you deliver the reward that's the thing that didn't drive me it didn't bother me at the time i understood there was something going on there because i was also making precision healing at the time and yeah and, okay and i want like the dog stared at a precise point right my face mm-hmm. uh, while it while things are happening right and they had to stay doing that even if drops or whip cracks, whatever the hell happens until I mark. And so I, I knew you know, like what I was aiming for there and in other places where we, cause we were doing tracking too. Yeah, oh, so okay. I was teaching article indication with tracks and I knew what that was looking like. And so then the space where, um, you know, I'm walking up to reward the dog for a job well done and the behaviors breaking down, uh, like I noticed it. Right. But Every dog was doing it and nobody said that's a problem and the dog still stayed on task. And I was, I knew when he found what he was looking for and I trusted him. So all went well. Uh, but I've thought about that a lot since. And I've watched, like I've spent some time at Lackland working with DTS over there. And, um, whenever I see them doing their, their detection stuff, I was wonder about that space. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, I would do that a lot differently. I would want just because of <laughs> the controlling trainer that I am. Sure. Now. Well, I don't know. It's like the attention to detail is a useful and lovely mm-hmm. thing. And so I would want to also have that. Per, per, I would want that attention to detail. Yeah. So that's the thing. To answer Okay. Question.
0: What would you now? So fast forwarding to all that, you know, now share a little bit, how you'd go about if you were in that position now, what would you do differently? How would you
1: tackle that? Yeah. That that's, Spinning wheel got me excited when I saw that. I saw a video you put out. Natalie was working her dog and, you know, the sky's falling and that thing's moving and the dog is just on it until it's released from it. That made tons of sense to me. Mm -hmm. And so – that's what I would change. I'd tell Tom to get a damn spinning wheel and we would sit and proof the dog's <laughs> indication or something like that. Would
0: you say it was the wheel or the fact that the the,
1: the dog's conditioned reinforcer understanding of that? That It's the latter. Sure. But, but the wheel seemed like a beautiful place to uh, work out some of the kinks and, and to show folks that don't have the training eye mm-hmm. on what this could look like or, or help the dog mm-hmm. understand the concept faster. But absolutely, it's this idea that, you know, like as long as I've got Marker control of this thing, and the dog understands their job like easy,
0: yeah the and you and I have talked about this a little bit too. we had a fun conversation the other day just in the lounge talking about it, the pros and cons of multiple condition reinforcers, one that means reward at the location of odor, and then the other one that would mean reward at you. And we talked about you technically didn't have to have two. Two is useful, but if you're good with your criteria, one is just as powerful. Share a little bit about like your thoughts and feelings and kind of what we discussed uh, mm-hmm. about that.
1: Mm. In my own training, like if I'm rearing a dog, I'll have probably four markers. One is... um Duration, so keep going. Signal, and, and in the beginning, it's paired with you know something mm-hmm. so that's worth, so it's worth hearing. Mm-hmm. Dog gets it, but terminal markers, I'll have at least three, and um, it's useful in um, in the obedience work. I look at the indication and detection. I feel about it, how I feel about maybe like a dog focusing to a singular point in healing. Mm -hmm. And I know that in healing, if I were to say good, keep going signal and I were, I were going to reward on that. And the dog looked away. I would not feel good about that. I would feel like I'm letting some really clear contractual relationship that I've worked hard to build um, fade away. Mm -hmm. so I'd feel like I'm I'm failing in some sense, the clarity there. Uh, And so when I, So in the point that I would use that, then I would say, good, if the dog's on the right track, keep going. And I would always terminate, right? And I would proof this not out of it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I got a ball in this hand, a ball in that hand, whatever. And so I'd go through the steps here, but I would always terminate to reward. And so when we were talking about it from a detection sense, that's how I would look at it. I would say, I can have a keep going signal here. Uh, and it means you've found it, you're on the mm-hmm. right track, and I'm going to even come up and play around with now proofing your commitment to that. If I wanted to be um, that diligent about it. Sure. I really, really wanted to own some really precise thing there. Uh, And then I would always have, you know, a signal that, that, boom, you can get out of there now and actually enjoy your reward that you've gotten. Um, And it sounded like, and we can actually talk through this a little bit, but that space that we're talking about, if I'm going to come up and deliver the reward in place, I would be a little bit bothered if the dog was waving their head around. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe I would have to let that go because maybe it doesn't matter that much, right? The dog is still there. uh, But there's the person that sets clear criteria and really tries to train for those pieces because it's just, it's worth doing, I think, in a lot of places Mm -hmm. that would want to own some, some real clarity there. So, would, if I said good, the dog knew that they were on the right track and they knew I was bringing the reward up. For me, I would still aim for a dog that was really focused on where they felt that that source odor was. Mm-hmm. Would you be bothered by that, the dog? It's it's a great question, and it's a
0: debate that happens frequently within the detection dog industry. Um, a segment says, "I don't care how pretty something is; mm-hmm. I just want the dog to tell me it's there." And you said that earlier when you were mm-hmm. as you were learning detection that though the dog may not have had that pretty stare you still knew it found odor. So there's a significant point to that is if you are good enough at reading your dog and you know, those signals um, that that means my dog found odor. Then there's the other side of the equation, which is we want better precision and more strict criteria because as uh, uh, I've heard a saying, I think it was Bart Ballon that says it, Kissing leads to fucking. So if you allow certain things just to happen, the behaviors are a little bit all over the place, but you're just, then that, like you said a second ago, degrades. Mm. So the ones who are more precision oriented really have strict criteria to prevent these other things from happening. A common one is licking source. Mm. Another one is, like you said, the head tilt or body, like as soon as the head tilts, how long until the body tilts mm. and how long until the dog just turns around. So these are this is where the two camps kind of start creating that debate mm-hmm. is those that like, hey, I don't care. I can read my dog when it's an odor. It's all the pre-behaviors. It's the changes of, of of breathing, the how the body positions start changing, all these what we call the alert behaviors, mm-hmm. change your behavior. And then the trained final response. So in some cases, there could be conditions in which a trained final response isn't feasible, the train they're on, mm. you know, location of the odor. Um, so then that's where that argument comes in. They'll say, well, I don't see. what would you do then if you're Mr. Precise, what do you do when that can't happen? And can your dog, is it clear to your dog mm-hmm. that if they can't get into that typical, trained final response that you've built so good and so strong um what would they do then and for me my thing is my job is to proof through that in training like how can i once i've built what you talked about a good strong clear behavior my criteria is the same i'm rewarding these things and i'm proofing it now let's look at it when a condition may exist where i can't get it that way what will my dog do now and that becomes part of – then it flips back to the other argument. I know my dog, mm. but I can build conditions that if this can't happen, this is also allowed. But I'm still strict about mm. that procedure. What that looks like. Yes. Yeah. And when we do that, that actually helps the dogs out. It requires uh, more effort to tell you something's there than just popping into a behavior. Mm -hmm. And and that's the other part Mm -hmm. of the argument that will come into play is, is the dog just offering a behavior to offer behavior, or is the dog offering the behavior because the odor was the stimulus that started that chain? Mm -hmm. And this is, like you said, as we get deeper in the weeds of training and the clarity of that training, Mm -hmm. um, systems that place a lot of attention on a trained final response sometimes create a dog who becomes very focused about doing a behavior for you regardless of whether odors there or not or out of frustration when there hasn't been odor found or
1: duration of I can the search. Feel that i can feel that
0: yeah so that's so these were this is this is welcome to the world of, uh, <laughs> of yeah. detection yeah. and the different stances that come within the industry and it's there's a lot of there's there's relevant points to all sides. Mm. Um that, that video I shared this the other day of Michael, um there can be truths to both sides of this thing. This yeah. side is also true, this side's true. And, yeah. and what you bring up is where I kind of feel the same thing. I I want to be as clear and as precise as I can because the more clear I am, the more precise the dog does the behavior I want under these conditions. Even in the absence of that, of, of a way of doing that, they're going to be very strong. I'm like ah, it's odors here. I may not be able to sit perfectly or focus as easily because of whatever's happening. But because there's such a history to it, it's going to be completely unmistakable. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but to that point earlier, if we've done we've proofed ourselves and, and thrown our dogs into lots of different
1: conditions. We know what that looks like. Yeah, if you're thorough in your training, you're going to have uncovered what that would look like. <clears throat> and I should say, I'm not a detection guy. I have no dog in this. In this but it's funny fun to listen know. to your you, but if you're asking me, I'm, I'm certain I would be uh, having a detailed, focused response, not at the cost of vigilance and searching. Correct. Like, That's I, a I, huge I point. I, I could see, like now that I like, I'm going in this little thought process here. This little, this little think thing. I mean, I'm reflecting back to the border collie that was a very intense searcher because I spent all the time doing the, full, the field searching, and um, I could have had a much more detailed final response or it wouldn't have been at the cost of the search. <laughs> I don't think that the terminal response to this whole sequence of things would have taken away from um, what I had gained by that early work of imprinting odor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it is fun to think about. And you know, as we're talking about it right now, it kind of, I was feeling a little bit excited about it all because here's the, um, like, so, so now all I'm doing with dogs is stuff that involves like both of us together. Um, even when they're doing, you know, going down to bite somebody, I'm still channeling a lot of that stuff through me. Uh, and so here's, you know, this sport that we're talking about or this um, skill that we're talking about, where the dog has this independent side and you can play with how you develop that, how much you want to be involved or how little, and I would love to be little at that portion. And then there's this end thing that could be very detailed and kind of slick and sexy. Mm -hmm. I can see myself um, tinkering within that space too. And then how do these two things come together to create something that's That's, a little special?
0: That's the beauty. And what you brought up there, I loved because when you're a detection dog handler and you're going through this process, whether you're new or you're experienced, you're going through the cost benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, I have to, my dog has to know the odor, but I also have to have a dog who's very good at searching. So searching and odor are very important aspects. You separate those two things. Correct. And the trained final response is also separated. I don't want my trained final response piece to become overwhelming or pull away. From the searching odor aspect. It's not the priority. Correct. Because just like I said, there could be a number of conditions that exist um, where a trained final response isn't feasible in the way that you trained it. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, with that said, the industry for the longest time focused heavily or a majority of training or points – that instructors would make handlers pay attention to was all about this indication. Mm. And the sexy thing that sells online is really cool, very statuesque Mm. type indications where the shift needs to start happening more frequently is how good is my dog at finding the odor under extremely varied circumstances how it's presented, how it's hidden, how we do all of these things that my, my dog might face. What if it's covered in the – what if it's in the ground? What if it's covered in mm-hmm. some kind of masking agent? Sure. What if it's this many feet high, this many feet deep? And Because what happened was in a significant aspect, putting out odors was just simply putting out odor. You just find a drawer, stick a hide there. You can create some simple challenges, but – Overall, it wasn't that hard. It wasn't like you were training to combat the fact that someone's trying to hide, deliberately get it past you and your dog. Mm. A lot of the hides aren't set up that way. Mm. They're set up just to acknowledge that we did training. My dog found the odor. We can do that with odor recognition testing. That's that's where that should really happen. What we should really focus on and to prepare the dog for good detection is the complexity in which odor is presented to the dog, it's it doesn't get shared. It doesn't get shared. I, I'm somewhat guilty of not sharing that enough. Uh, I'm I've changing that. have heard you talk about it. A yeah, lot recently. I'm, I'm changing. You're excited that. about it so. because I want for those that do a lot of the bite work stuff. My, my joke is you know, they'll do bite work scenarios that are com- like off the chain, like. Mm let's light somebody on fire. And will my dog bite them while they're on fire? You know, they will come up with like all these crazy scenarios to give a dog numerous different pictures of, will some, will my dog bite we've under never, this condition? never
1: done that. Yeah. you know. got a dog that probably will. <laughs>
0: yeah. I right. Think about. So, but we get that in depth with presenting pictures to the dog to like, how would it engage under these circumstances? What are we doing to odor? That's parallels. Mm. What cool ways can I, have odor, hidden, masked, location, positions um, that I get really good at telling my, my. even though it's difficult, my dog gets better and better and better mm. at those situations and telling me, yep, mom or dad, odor's here. And can I read that dog to those nuances? Because in some cases, it's going to be, that's the challenge. That's the part. For me, that I'm finding more and more fun is doing that. Now, I think a lot there's there's typical restraints that have hindered that growth. Part of it like was what? training time. Oh well, to do that, I'd In have institution to institution within a yeah, because you, your your training time is typically once a week, and okay. you're training for X amount of hours, yeah. and you have to train a bunch of other things, not just detection. Check. So. Detection gets turned into just putting it out, and I always even say sport world. Now their world's different. Um, they're not as required. Um, their difficulty levels, you know, progressively get more difficult. So they go from you know NW one to summit, and there's that helps them get through that. Um, the difference when you're on the professional side is you, there's in many cases someone deliberately trying to conceal this target substance from your dog. And sport doesn't have that yet where we're deliberately trying to see if I can get it past the dog's nose. Um, The thing I've learned professionally is many times if I'm the smuggler or if I'm the person with bad intentions with explosives or firearms, I know I may not fool the dog, but if I can do enough to make you the handler not trust your dog, that's another aspect. That's my job, huh? Yes. So if I can get that to happen, which is unique, you know, just being creative and how the substance is food saver bags and Vaseline and coffee grinds. I I did one that was super easy (laughs) as far as like the concealment was. Um, It was just, I had deck cord and I put it in a uh, McDonald's cup and deck cord comes in a lot of different colors. And this was like a bright yellow color with like a black stripe around it. So I put it in the McDonald's cup. Put the cap on it and pushed it out the top of the cup like it was a straw. So only about Correct. three to four inches were sticking out of the top of the McDonald's cup, and I put that out. Almost every dog went right to it. Like here it is. Handlers were like, uh-uh, "Come on, back to work." Wow, tricky. Because they just saw the McDonald's cup, they viewed it as food, yeah. and this. And in the narcotic, narcotics world, a lot of those similar things happened. Um, you know, I they, feel like
1: you could have side job <laughs> as some somebody that helps these folks that are trying to get there,
0: there are people that do that.
1: There, you could be a consultant, you know. For well there
0: cartels saying, or something. Well no, no no joke. There is I mean, um, more money. The, the car, yeah, Cartels have employed uh not only have they employed you know that they have whole jobs of concealment, uh they have actually purchased drug dogs to test their concealment sure, methods. Yeah. To see if the dogs can find it or yeah. not. Um, so that has happened in a way. But no, the bigger picture is, you know, I, it, the there's the beginning stages, teaching my dog the joy of hunting and finding this thing, and then how to report to me they found it. What, what way do I want you to tell me you found it? Um, then my job as the trainer, handler, how do I maintain that? The next thing is how we start making this more and more difficult As well as making sure my dog is honing in on what I want it to find, Mm. not just find the odd thing in this room that doesn't belong. Mm. Because many times training is set up where I'm putting out my training hides, that's the only thing in that room that didn't belong, Mm. or the only thing on that car that didn't belong. I didn't purposely put out other things that are stinky and smelly and don't belong, and does my dog ignore those and only focus? So that's another way of saying, you know, of, of upping the game and putting myself as a handler is in an uncomfortable position of, we have to figure this out together. Mm-hmm. And that's the collaboration part that I know someone like you and myself, we really
1: love that challenge. Yeah. So I spoke about it all like, a the other day as a dance, and that was really appealing to me. And um, I love to hear you talk about this stuff because it's just the problems that, you have to address when you're doing when you're training a dog in these type of tasks. It's fun.
0: Yeah. So would you ever see yourself, uh, working a
1: detection dog? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you can, it could be, whatever I could you see, want. yeah, I could see teaching a dog. Um, so, I mean, I do some scent, I do scent work with all the dogs that I have, but uh, we're mostly finding my scent on things Sure, because sure. the, the, if I'm saying I'm aiming at a sport, um mondia ring that's got one exercise in it where the dog would have to go out and do that so so any dog that i like the last four um, puppies i've reared to a certain mm-hmm. age i have had some like imprinting on that and actually going out and finding them mm-hmm. and so i always like that the uh, the indication thing has always sat mm-hmm. with me a little bit i love that we just had this conversation and uh yeah man who knows <laughs>
0: well, i was gonna <laughs> say the more we keep hanging out yeah, we might we might find
1: you <laughs> yeah. out there working the detection dog yeah. in some form. Well, of fashion. I feel like yeah, the more that we hang out, certainly we're going to like train some things. Uh-huh. You know? I'll be like Cameron, what should I do today with this? And then you know, six months from now, I'll have a dog that's quite a. And I'm going
0: to look right? at you and go figure out how to, you know get it past me. Let's let's you yeah. know how can you you know let's beat each other if we can
1: at what would be useful. So here's a guy that is a, just a citizen, sport guy. If I was going to try, if I had a a talented dog that I was going to train for this thing. What what odor would I put it on? That's a great question. Because um, I'd want to go out and do something with it. Probably, yeah, but I'm not law enforcement. I'm not military. Correct.
0: That's a question we get all the time. So today now exists a chemical called we call it novel odor training aid, um, and that doesn't exist anywhere in any environment. It's made in a laboratory. Only basically for this purpose. It's actually a calibration tool. It was initially called uh, UDC, Universal Detection Calibrant. It was for sensors. It's a little Fido. It's a sensor called Fido. And this Fido sensor, uh, Florida International University, Dr. Ken Furton and one of his students um, came up with a way to calibrate this machine that would they could stick it into packages and different things mm. to pull in air samples and see what's in it. So the UDC was a chemical that was wasn't anywhere. But they could use that to calibrate the machine. So okay, put the UDC in this thing. Your, the machine would read it, give you the exact readings. So that way, you knew the machine was working. And then the machine's programmed to uh, find or, or alert to in the presence of these other chemicals that they're looking for. Um, it's not like a dog, though. That's what it's not. It, it's only mobile by the person holding the machine. Mm. So you have to walk in and test each thing. And in that chamber or in that box or whatever it was or pallet of stuff, um, if that chemical was there, one of however many chemicals the computer was supposed to pick up on, they could tell you it was there. So not super efficient in comparison to a dog who can navigate a very big space, dynamically find odor, like, follow, like little traces and follow it to it stronger. The machine's not going to do that. The machine's just in your hand. And you're going, yeah, okay, there's a reading here.
1: Yeah, fuck that machine.
0: Yeah, yeah. And especially they named it Fido, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is competition for the dogs that are out there doing all
0: Oh, the- it, as technology and canines start to merge mm-hmm. more, uh, we will see some things uh, piggybacking together. Yeah. But this chemical is something that people can train on and can purchase. So I could get yes. access, I could have access to this and train Yep. Yeah. And then train your dog on that until you decide what specialty that you wanted to get into. And today I recommend the growth of the conservation detection discipline or, or field or industry. It is probably to me one of the biggest growing fields that is also very accepting or very in tune with scientific procedures when it comes to good practices when training a dog, good practices when it comes to storage and and odor hygiene and things like that. Um, But back to that other point you made, if I'm not military, I'm not law enforcement, how do I get into detection? Conservation is one of those fields that anybody can get into. And it's really impactful on a lot of things. Uh, One of the other podcasts I did was – with a lady named Debbie Deshawn and she has muscle dogs, the zebra mussels that are plaguing a lot of bodies of water lakes in other states. Uh, they get overrun. So California kind of took an initiative to place these dogs at various lakes where the dogs will sniff the boats before they can go in the water and if the dog were to indicate to the presence of the zebra mussel, that that boat's not getting on hmm. because they don't want to spread because that's how it spreads around. Someone right. boats in one lake over here, gets it, and they transfer it over
1: there. Yeah, we had that problem where I grew up.
0: So there you go. So that's just one of many other things. Another friend of mine, Paul Bunker, he has a dog that detects it can find oil in various beaches, and they're looking to see is oil seeping up to the beaches, um, you know it's a lot of it's in Texas and they're looking to see if off offshore drilling and things like that. Are we seeing an impact? Um,
1: there's just, there's, I mean, were you telling me about that odorless substance because I could train a dog on that and now they have the skills for searching and indicating blah, blah, blah. Correct. And, Yeah, and, it, I, and then I could actually pick the thing I'm going to work on and yeah. I haven't Excluded myself, correct, from being legitimate because yeah. I have trained him on something yeah. that wouldn't allow me. Is that yeah. what you're saying? that? So yeah, yeah, and, and there, it's if I was not going it, to find a buddy down the street with. Like yeah, I
0: know, right? Yeah, or <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or just go to Australia where they train on Vegemite, and oh, then yeah, and we've got like, that at home. <laughs> the uh, but no, uh, actually, it does have an odor. But like I said it's a substance, a chemical substance that does not. It's not anywhere else.
1: Yeah, it doesn't exist okay. in our in our world as, as because a, that's a problem. Of isn't? course, if I've trained a dog on certain things and then I want to actually to go out and do a job and that job is meaningful and that's They do something that's going to have to uphold in court or get somebody in trouble.
0: Yeah. That's the biggest thing that pigeonholes a lot of breeders or vendors who want to get detection was, well, crap, what do I train? And here's Murphy's law. I train this one on drugs. i put, i put one drug odor on it. And then the next nine 11 happens and everybody wants bomb dogs. And I have this one great dog, but I've already put explode or sorry, I've already put drugs on it. So now it can't be a bomb dog anymore. And so that was a industry issue is, That's crazy. Yeah. How do I train? Maybe it's not, I don't know. It just seems crazy. Yeah. Well, the, that was, <laughs> but that's where, that's what happens. That was, what was really happening with vendors and breeders who wanted to prep dogs in detection was what do I use? So in lieu of something like that, they would use most cases. They would teach the dog to find a toy. Uh, in Europe, one of the most common things is the, there's a, there's, different businesses and instructors to teach the dogs to find Kong and down to like the smallest sliver of a piece of a Kong and in many things over in the way that the legal system works over there that can be, that can work for them. Um, you're, you're taking something obviously that's very valuable to the dog, the reward, the toy, and you're teaching it to find it. None of these very, again, going through all the steps, yeah. very difficult conditions, very low odors levels. You're getting a skill really taught and then you go, okay, now you're also going to go find this chemical, this odor, whatever yeah. it ends up being for them. In the states, that became as far more problematic, um, especially on the legal aspect, because of our legal system and the challenges that may get can brought totally up.
1: see it and understand it. Yeah. It's a little so, bit of a, of a shame because so. dogs are really capable and we are more capable probably than we show up a lot of times sure. for things. so.
0: And that's, and that's an, so that was a thing. So now, but the cool thing is we do have something. We do have something that anybody can purchase. Um, Cool. I'll, I'll put in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Michelle Mond uh, provides what we call the uh, handler kit, which is just a get sent tube saturated with that odor already in it. It's there to train your one dog. Um, businesses like myself who train lots of dogs, we have a full kit of this chemical with various different levels to it and stuff. Um, but yeah, so it exists now and we are, we're not so pigeonholed if we, uh, if someone is saying, Hey, I've got a great dog. I want to get into detection. I now have something I can train my dog, the skills of detection and it not interfere into what I might find myself doing professionally or sport down the line. Cool. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean, I look forward to having you uh, get into the detection dog world a little bit because you look at things. We look at things very similar as trainers, yeah. and that's the fun part. And it's it's really enjoyable when you can get around each other and be like, okay, how do we let's let's do this. Yeah. Let's can can we do this? Let's try. Right. Yeah, you know, and push
1: that boundary. I could see it when I can't catch dogs anymore.
0: Yes, I mean, you. Well, you're going to still be lots of diversity to you, I'm yeah. sure. With uh, as you get the deeper back into Mondio again, and, and and to bring this back towards you a little bit, as you,
1: I want to... Quit pushing detection dogs on. Camera. No, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take you out of it right I now. I appreciate that yeah. you see me as a guy that... Oh, yeah. You know, ...likes to do a lot of different things.
0: Well, because it's the art of the dog. Mm. You know, you like these different ways of...
1: It's really interested in all, just like, just like you are, we all are. I'm yeah. sure everybody listening, right? We yeah. we sometimes specialize.
0: Of course, you know, it's different things motivate us at different times, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I shared after 20 something years of doing bite dogs and police canine and special operation stuff and military stuff. I love doing detection now, yeah. you know, for me, it's again, because it's a field that wasn't really looked at in the industry too heavily. Everything was always about the sexy, cool, bite work stuff, and I've done a lot of that. Now I enjoy something different and the challenge of, and the science that's happening in the in this world. And detection was really also interesting to me, um, so that drove me. And it's cool to see, like you said, you were talking the there today how you know you hadn't done Mondio for a little while, and now you're kind of reinvigorated. You've got some dogs that you're raising, and you're pulling yourself you know, more and more and more into that, uh, heavier competition aspect. You know, can I get up there? Yes. Time will tell. Right. When you finished, uh, bringing it back to your story, when you finished, um, Tom Rose, how long until you found Michael and started coming out
1: pretty pretty quickly, somebody actually mentioned him while I was at the school, uh, but I didn't look into him. And, uh, Leerberg was posted a couple of Videos of him talking about stuff. And it really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. So I sent him an email. Oh. say hey, what's up?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm almost impressed that he answered the email knowing that. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's a bit of a story. I sent him an email. Um, I'd listened to a few of his things. And then he was working with his dog, Pi. And I had a lot of friends. Um, I had a few friends at the Tom Rose School that had gotten Malinois. I didn't. I just didn't feel like I up for that yet. Yeah, And then um, I met a couple of people outside of the school that had males. And so I was thinking about a um, mal and why well, I wanted to pursue some protection sports. And so I thought I'd get the tool for the job. And so I saw Michael and um, kind of the way that he had was speaking about dogs were the things that were in my heart. Mm-hmm. He had kind of the words for the feelings that I had. And I think a lot of people feel that way about, yeah. about him. So, and then I saw him working pie and that was really beautiful to watch. And so I had sent him a message about um, getting a Malinois in a year or so. I thought I'd be ready for it. Then i would be settled down in my business and have the dog that I had to a point that I could take on something else. And then, um, I must've, yeah, it must've been a nice enough email that he did reply back to (laughs) it. But he said that, um, so he said, you know, find me in a year, you know, get you a dog, but. He, he, emailed, he emailed me. If it was a few weeks later, a month later, saying that he had a Malinois puppy in the area that didn't have a home. Um, the person that was going to take it could no longer take it. So, if I was wa- wanting to, you know, j- jump that, <laughs> yeah, like get beat up your standard, timeline, yeah, like, uh, fast track my way to a Malinois. And so, I had to think about that for a few minutes, and then uh, I ended up getting Elzer. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep, and then- that changed my life completely.
0: So you get this dog, did you, you hadn't been out here yet, obviously. Mm -hmm. How long after you got that dog, did you find your way down here?
1: Uh, Year and a half or two years. Yeah. So I got Elzer from a lady named Donna Mady and she lived in Wisconsin near me. She bred her dog Jackson to a dog named Vodka. Those were uh, Lou du Soleil dogs. Her and Michael had a friendship. Donna was a really successful competitor in Monday Ring and just a dynamite dog trainer. And so I ingratiated myself to her. Her, I would cut her lawn or sweep her floors or whatever the hell I needed to do so that I could be around her. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so I got Elzer from her because she had whelped that litter. Um, and then we started training together and she um, you know, paid for me to go and learn with decoys and she had so much you know, knowledge herself. And so her and I were really tight for you know, a couple of years, over a yeah. uh, year and a half. And then Michael was coming in every so often to do seminars there. And at that time, it was just six of us you know, oh wow michael would come in with pie and we would train you know and then he would go back home and come back again six months later and there was a point where he called me so i think we we got along really well and yeah. i think he saw something in me as a trainer and so um, i just remember as i'm raising elder there was when he called me on the phone to just to ask how it's going right and then after that he, we would touch base either he'd call me or i'd call him every couple of months um, every twice a month or every uh-huh. couple times a month I remember Donna telling me that that was really weird because, you know, Michael doesn't get on the phone a lot. No, Kind of, this, you know, the same way, too. And so she said, well, you must have an interest in what you're doing. And then we opened up a conversation together about me going there and helping out of this school, which was growing. And so then that eventually happened. Nice. So you got to be out here helping teach and share information? Yeah, yeah. at this old building. Um, I came in first and um, sat in on classes and then worked my dogs to support the things that he was doing much like Lindsay did who yes. was there at the time. And then, um, it's, you know, he trusted us. We took over a day, a week, sometimes two days a week to teach a class that was going on. So
0: yeah, that yeah, was cool. How was that? Uh, was that a lot of pressure? Or did you or were you like, Holy shit, I'm Michael's having me teach. Your no, I was always yeah. comfortable with it.
1: Mike's a cool dude. So like yeah. if he was going to say, go for it, then we felt fine. And we had a lot to, to share, you know, a lot of the people that were coming in, um, were just new to it. And so we were, you know, especially myself, I loved sharing the things that I had with people. And so it felt really natural for me. And that was a cool time. Yeah, we were all training and we had a great community of people around uh, in California. Mm -hmm. There was more than me that had moved out to California, Mm -hmm. I think, to be closer to Michael and what we were doing. Um, So there was two other people that were in my area that moved out there, Mm -hmm. um, too. So we had a nice little community for a while. Yeah. And it's starting to happen again out here. There's a great community here. Yeah. Yeah. There's a premier of field here for like set up for Ring, but just for dog training in general and Michael school and some serious folks. Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: So as an instructor, what is the biggest challenge that you went through early on or what's still a challenge you, you go through today? Um, and what advice would you give somebody, you know, that's getting into teaching other people or working
1: with people with dogs? challenge for me i think has always been not giving too too much so giving the right amount and you have to read the person to know what the right amount is i still find myself like at moments where i i want to give them more or i want them to want it more or something like that I'll be focused on some detail and I need them to understand why it's important. And they just don't care, and yeah. like, but it's so important. And then I go back and have a conversation. Maybe it's not that important, you know, like this fucking final response right? we're talking about. Maybe it doesn't matter at all. I'm driving myself crazy. So that's always a conversation I have about it. Um, it's, you know, the way that I might feel about something is not the way that somebody else might feel about it. The things I might choose to care about, and we'll, you know, everybody's a little bit, right? Yeah. It,
0: it's, I, I loved that part. I, where you say
1: how much information to give that's tough because mm-hmm. like you said, you're a little bit the same, right? You're just oh, you're full man. of it and you love to give it and you've got, you're rich with this stuff. Right. And so we got to read our audience. Once For sure. That's saying and, you don't read your own.
0: No. I and, I, and I, sometimes I don't. And, and that's, or like you said, being passionate about a topic that you're covering um, makes it where you're you want to share all that information about that thing and they're not ready for it yet. Yeah. You know, um, there might be one or two in the audience that are there with you. Um, it's tough because then added to it. And I know you've gone through this a little bit when you're doing seminars, you have three days at best to be there, share in many cases, tons of information. Um, and, and feel good about being able to walk away after that three days and go, Okay. I left them with good Mm. info Mm. Um, or met their expectations Mm. because I know a lot of times when I go places um, people will feel like they want to do certain things with their dogs. Maybe they want to do some really complex searches or whatever. And we have to spend more time on the basics. Uh, A lot of the things that they might deal with, or that they bring up in conversation that they want to work on i can look at and go well that's actually started way over here in your basics so let's clean that up so then there's not enough time yeah you know and the importance of basics is something uh there's that saying you know as you you know the the master the person the more skilled you get over time the more you care about the basics. But when you're first early on, all you care about is the advanced stuff. You yeah, know? Yeah. And that's so true. Yeah. And as we travel and teach with others, people want to do what we all like, the cool stuff, mm-hmm. the challenging things. Mm-hmm. But as an instructor now, I don't want to, there's certain times I want to set you up for a learning opportunity. Maybe a failure might come from that. But I don't want to do it unintentionally. I don't want to do it because you just want to go do this thing and I can already see that's a good point. Yeah how so that for me has been something that's hard you know, I've had to try to learn and regulate my passion. Mm. You know, that's a tough one. Yeah. You know, it's uh
1: something I've gotten better at in the in the same line of what I said earlier was letting people come to things themselves. Yes. A bit. And so I think the dog will give us permission to move forward with the aspects of training. You can see they're ready for it. Like I, I can add this piece clearly. Um, and then, uh, but a lot of it when you're teaching others is most of it's about the, the person then like working with the people. And there's something cool about um, having enough certainty in yourself and when you can feel kind of the wisdom internally. Like when I get it right when I like leave something alone a little bit or let somebody come to their own conclusions, I'm I'm always a little proud of myself. Like yeah. I could have tried to like give this to you or spoon feed it to you. Um, but I, you know, I went and touched you and like touched some place in you in the right way that inspired you to look a little deeper within your own framework. Yeah. And so they can find it. So,
0: I, I love what you just said. There was the, uh, I heard you and Michael say the other day, and I definitely, I felt it. I follow it. I just didn't say it the way you did the dog giving you permission Mm -hmm. to move forward. Uh, We all, uh, so many of us move forward at a pace that we, we think, or we see a couple wins and we're like, yes, let's go to the next step. We don't have permission yet. You know, the, the dog in many cases hasn't even reached proficiency yet, let alone fluency yet. Mm -hmm. And, we get excited. I, I know I do, um, to let's ooh go here. Um, but when we realize we shouldn't have gone there yet, now we've added something that we have to undo mm-hmm. and then reestablish. And, and it's that constant game. And, that, and that's and the, the, the beauty of this is everybody goes through this yeah. in different ways and in different programs and stuff like that. But I love if we keep that mentality, we move forward when the dog gives us permission. mm mm-hmm. That would if if that's our ethos and that's our shoreline, that's will guide us so much better. Cool to to do, yeah. you know. Um,
1: I'm so you, I'm glad you like
0: that. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah! Because, like I said, I, I've felt it. I've followed it. I've yeah. also lots of times not followed it. Yeah. You know, the excitement is what gets all of us sometimes. You know, or internal competitiveness or mm. keeping up with the Joneses and. You know, other ones in my group, or that dog started the same time me and my dog started. Look at them. Yeah, that's the that's the beauty. We just have to sometimes, you know, ego check ourselves and say, let's go at this pace. Um, but no, that was a beautiful thing to, um, like I said, when I got to watch you guys talk about training you and Michael, um, how you guys both follow that principle, um, and that's a solid one. You know, that's the dog has to allow us. And we, once we do that, I know the
1: success rate of what whatever we train will just oh, yeah.
0: really the, grow. And
1: for the end result I'm looking for, it's helpful yeah. you know, to get that if the dog is eager for the next thing or ready for it. Yeah. I'm a pretty conservative trainer too, I think, sometimes to a fault. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the, the balance between waiting around too long or something yeah. or, or pushing them forward is, I mean, that's just experience. That's just being in the game.
0: Yeah. It allows you to, uh, as a trainer, see around the corner of, Ooh. you know, preventing, um, I stole that from, uh, Marion and he asked us the question as a trainer, how do you see around the corner when you're working with students to help prevent, um, mistakes from happening? Mm-hmm. And, you know, both my answer and Natalie's answer was by living it ourselves, you know, you've seen and you've made that mistake you've gone through that. Um, so you can see these things ahead of time. You're like, Ooh, I know if we keep going that way. The possibility of X happening uh, is there. So as a, if you're as a good instructor is to know when sometimes you need to let that happen. So there's, can be a lesson learned, but sometimes you also have to help the human go. We don't want to do that because this is what might happen to the dog. And, so you, you're using your wisdom and experience to share with others through your failures. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> so that was a, a good one. Who, you know, obviously we know Michael had a big influence and Tom Rose, who's another trainer uh, that you've really, it really had an impact on your life as a,
1: as a dog person. Mm-hmm. For decoy work, Joaquin Devot. I would consider him a mentor for working dogs in the suit. Mm -hmm. Met a young guy recently. I'm kind of inspired by him. Um, And our relationship is such that he's got a lot he can gain from me. Mm -hmm. And and there's a lot I can gain from him. His name is Tommy Besherin. It's a little bit of a time capsule. He grew up in a kind of a legendary Belgian ring club in Belgium. Mm -hmm. He's here in the States now, and he's talented and eager and cool, grounded dude, mature. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's fun. Um, Ray Coppinger Mm. only because I had kind of a lovely weekend with him. (laughs) I'd read his book. I first ever heard Michael talk about him. He's an interesting guy. And then I went to a conference and kind of got drunk with him. And he's told all these lovely stories that I share on occasion. So, um, and, uh, Somehow, you know, he's in my, he's in my story and meaningful, uh, Bob Bailey, yep. who you and I met, um, you know, if Bob trained dogs, we'd probably train them a lot differently, but, God, yeah. but he's a special person. A lot of the concepts and things that we talk about that we're onto in dog training come from him and his oh, yeah. training. Yep. So he's, he's really important. And he's kind of magnificent, like mm-hmm. an individual. Mm-hmm. We spent time with him. Oh and yeah. So, and that was really special. Uh, for me, I think, um, Donna, maybe, you know, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. somebody that, you know, has, has been important at a certain time. John Soros. I used to spend, uh, Bit of time with him. We trained dogs mm-hmm. probably very differently, but he was um, really good in his own way. And I spent some time around him, a lot of time actually, in like a formidable period of my training. And, and so got a lot out of that. Yeah. That's probably enough. How would you say Doc Hilliard has affected you? Stuart. Yeah. I, sh- I probably should have mentioned him. Uh, <laughs> I saved you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Doc is special for sure. Yeah. I think, he, and he's a bit shy and um, reluctant to maybe to, to be somebody that people would look to for like help. Yeah. Dog you know, stuff. He's this mix of, you know, he's this charismatic, beautiful, soulful person. He's an academic. Oh yeah. A serious academic, you know, Dr. Stuart Hilliard. And then he's a, a skilled practitioner. And so I think it's an incredibly unique combination of this really interesting, special person, mm-hmm. dog person. And so I didn't know uh, until I, I accompanied Michael down to a seminar at Lackland, and I stayed with him at his house. And at first, I asked too many questions, and he was completely bothered by me. <laughs> I was like, who is this eager guy? I can feel it. You yeah. know, oh, yeah. shit, He doesn't like me at all. You know. <laughs> So then I did, like, did he get
0: up and just walk away on you at some time at some point?
1: I have you have just, you gone through that with him yet? Like there was one time he's like, I was asking him, like, do you know this person? And he's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, leave me alone, you know? <laughs> and then I like sulked in my <laughs> Oh shit, I pissed him off. I remember being sensitive to that <laughs> only because I really wanted him <laughs> to like me. Yeah. And he was he's just. Beautiful storyteller, too. He's got this oh, yeah. magnificent story, he's got this great journey. And this history, he like he was over traveling around Europe in the late 70s, early eighties and was fascinated with the Malinois. And he took all these pictures, visited all these clubs and got took all this documentation. And he still has um, this like folder full of these notes, right? It's part yeah. of this book that he's writing. And so like the record keeping that he's done for his life is incredible. Uh, and he's intimidating and impressive because of the way that his mind oh. works for a guy like me. Yeah. And I admire here. him so much. But uh, so I stayed at his house. He was annoyed by me. I was like, "Chill out! Quit asking so many damn questions. Like, just sit back, and observe." But um, yeah, somewhere, man, we found our way. You know, at the end of it, where I think he uh, he saw me and I saw him, and um, you know, and since he invited me down to like to come and work with his group down there in DTS, and uh, we talk a lot, oh, and yeah. friends, and there's kind of a, a deep relationship that's forming there. And I think that people should know more about him. I think he should start a YouTube channel. Uh, I think that the way that he can take, like, you know, the academic side of him and all of his training in that realm and the way that he thinks about dogs and understands, I'm sorry, animals Mm -hmm. and and learning and the way organisms, like, you know, show up and survive in this world. And his practice at dog training, I think, is nobody's got it like him. Yeah, he's...
0: One of our missions, right? Just yeah. To bring him up a little bit. For sure. Well, what most don't even really know is CTS, Canine Training Systems, those videos back when they had VHS tapes for those who didn't know what that was. Doc was a major contributor at that time.
1: The yeah, first videos
0: true. I ever watched was Doc in a bite suit from Monroe or uh, as a French company. I know I'm not saying it right. Um, but he, and these were like thin costumes as they mm-hmm. called them and then um and then he was Pajamas. working at, yes yeah and he was working a Lecanwa back at that time it was his dog and it was pretty Is a pretty intense dog but he just he was such a good speaker so good at sharing information and this is this is no joke this is like 89 to like 95 96 time frame and the information he shared. Then he also wrote books. He wrote the Schutzen book and uh, how it affected me. So now I'm I'm in the Air Force, which later on he goes to Lackland and takes over as a uh, head of the training at that time. I'm following what his book says to do when it comes to outing a dog, um, which is just doing pressure into the bite instead of, a, you know, opposition reflex. So I'm applying what I'm reading Doc talk about in a book, and he's not at Lackland yet. And then fast forward, like, four years later, he's at Lackland. I'm like, dude, the guy who I'm reading this – and I'm catching heat from following, like, the procedures that he's teaching in the book. Because, But the dog – it worked. It, yeah, it had cool. results. Um, That's how he affected me. But, you know, then over time, I mean, I, I view him as, like, a savant when it comes to yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Um, to include the quirkiness, of yeah, he it, is you know, quirky son of a gun. Yeah, I remember makes he had a great guacamole. The, well, he the part I remember him. He had a squirrel called Harry Nuts, okay. and a squirrel lived in his office.
1: Okay, and yeah. Harry
0: Nuts would run around the office. <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't know that at all. You didn't know that story. Oh, yeah. Ask Doc about Harry Nuts. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he had a he had a pet squirrel, and
1: and uh, that was one of the things that we you know new at Lackland. And, yeah. He's a, he's a lovely guy. I didn't want what I said earlier about him to sound like patronizing or something uh, in the sense that like more people need to know about him. Cause he's out there. And if you're in the sport world, then you would know. And he's a very, and he's, you know, but there's been a shift he's high up at, but I want I think that he could have mass appeal. Oh, if, if he wouldn't become hands, hands down. Cause like the common, like the average dog owner should be, should have access to a guy like, well,
0: like that. I said, you know, for me, He was relevant. Early on in my career. Then when he went to Lackland, he's been off the radar. And now that's been 20 plus years. Mm. So the dog world needs Doc to come. I think so. Back to a level of sharing information to us. Um, Cool. There's so many people listening to us right now who don't even know who he is. um, That if he does start sharing information. We'll get him. um, Oh, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll let the cat out of the bag now a little bit. Uh, you, Michael, and Doc will be doing something this summer, so that yeah. was something for people to stay tuned yeah. for. There'll be information about that and on we'll Michael's website, <laughs> and uh, the guys, you guys, people can come out and actually learn from all three of I'm you. I'm just riding coattails, man. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm just laughs> I, get long, I, I feel yeah. the same way. I'm doing that all the time. Um, so I figure I'll get into the, uh, there's only a couple questions uh, that people had
1: sent us to ask you, and let me go to it right now. Okay, so... You made a post on Instagram.
0: Yes, I sure did. And I'm going to that now. So, okay. A picture of me and you. All right. So, if you could leave one legacy that would change the dog world forever, what would it be?
1: You're right with this tough one. Right? Oh, darn. Well, I don't think I'm... I'm that guy, right? I think uh-huh. that uh, I think that there's been some big, big shifts or important like moments in it, like uh, maybe the Karen Pryor revolution, or even the way that people are using tools now in subtler, subtler ways. Mm-hmm. I think those are kind of legacy things. Maybe uh, and anything that I would be doing that I think would be important is is taken somewhere else is already established but maybe something like what we said earlier which is um, the dog gives us permission to move forward um, like patience allowing the process yes. to kind of play out but you know people know that so that's nothing to do with me i uh do have um, i would say like this just comes comes from francis metcalf and i think it's kind of somebody that has talked about this early on that really mm-hmm. inspired me, which was to have interests outside of yeah. dog training and yep. that there are things you can do peripherally that will also support it. Yeah. Like that, sometimes I look around and somebody's, you know, playing guitar and I'm like, that's dog training. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's kind of the same way you, <laughs> you look at it. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that for me, I've, um, I felt always like naturally ast- a student of this, which has caused me to go out and seek mm-hmm. information from people that had something I was looking for sure. as, as much as I could go to the source. I never felt comfortable just jumping into one thing and saying, this is the path. Yeah. So if like for better or worse, I've always had to go and, and grab other things. And so maybe I could encourage people to do that, yeah. to t- challenge their beliefs or to go mm-hmm. seek other information mm-hmm. and to play with it in earnest, like put it into practice and see if it's for you. I think I've been really good at that. And so that's something I could uh, give to folks. And then to be, um, like I was saying earlier, have interests outside of it. So like develop yourself outside of dogs. It's a lovely thing that we get to do. If we make a living doing it or yeah. it's our hobby or whatever, uh, but you know, we can do other things too. Sure. So- yeah. I like think that kind of protects you from getting a little bit, like the burnout. Yeah.
0: It, it, and that's, it, it's, it, it's uh, important because, you know, when you get as passionate about something, uh, it can also wear you out, you know, um, so having some diversity to what we do, but I, I truly think one of the things I, just from the outside looking in is your willingness to let the dog give you the permission, and I hope that's something that you'll keep sharing as part of what your contribution
1: to our industry is in the dog legacy world. Maybe stay yeah. the student is better. Yeah, there you go. Maybe that one. So everybody's listening. To yeah, that, just keep keep getting it. Keep seeking.
0: Keep seeking to be a student. Okay, if you know you, you could have lunch with anybody you wanted, who would you pick? In the, I'll make sure this is if it's related to the dog world. Um, the question is if you could have a one hour lunch conversation with any person that has ever existed in the world, who
1: would you pick? Such a crazy question. I yeah. peeped this one in advance, but I ah. saw it came in. Uh, so I did think about it and okay. I asked some other people too. Ah. Uh, so, <laughs> who, who, what advice do <laughs> you me? pick? One. Yes. Uh-huh. So maybe my answer will be my grandfather. Oh, ah, okay. Who, uh, who I didn't really get to know because uh, he died early on. Okay. And, and I've got others that I would want to, and I'll mention. Sure. Part of the reason is that a lot of the like the leaders and um, folks that have been helpful to me that I would love to have lunch with, a lot of them, there's uh, books written on them. Okay. You can, you can know kind of what they're about. Mm-hmm. I'm not um, Christian, but, you know, if, like if Jesus was a dude that was around walking, I'd love to have yeah. lunch with that guy, um, the Buddha siddhartha or whatever that yeah you know, the prince turned peasant like, yeah walking around he'd be that'd be cool uh, like a gandhi type nabe lincoln tupac mm-hmm. i like to have one mm-hmm. tupac mm-hmm. that would be fun mm-hmm. jane goodall she's kind oh. of her, uh, celebrity crush yeah good one all right jordan jane yeah fucking goodall. yeah she'd be cool she's still alive like, yeah that happen, oh yeah. You know? yeah 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 uh, <laughs> nikolai tesla Yeah, that's a cool one. I think that'd be kind of interesting. Elon Musk? Sure. I think that dude's (laughs) wild. Yeah, very interesting mind. uh, Here's another one. What about you? Just one, though. I named 10, right? (laughs) Yeah. I made it easy on myself. Wow. Turn the tables on me. Um,
0: Definitely, I would say Elon Musk, just because it's relevant to today. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one would be Steve Jobs. Cool. Cool. just because how he saw things, he wasn't so much the inventor. He could take something and make it better. Mm -hmm. Like he wasn't the genius like uh, Wozniak was like Mm. Wozniak was the one that could build the thing. Mm. Steve could look at it and go, it could be this though, you know, and like in his story was he saw this uh, at a Xerox place. He saw what later became the mouse it was a little wired connection that they controlled the Xerox machine with. And he was like, all computers need that. And so it wasn't like he thought of it, like, but he could see it a different way. And I relate to that a lot myself only because I'm not an inventor. I'm not like, I have like very little artistic skill whatsoever.
1: We're aggregators.
0: Yeah. I I can see something and go, Ooh, if you just make this change or you add this to it, that's kind of how the odor pays box kind of went further for me was, by no means did I come up with anything related to um, the typical detection dog box that exists. All I did was like, ooh, but I like it if we added this to it or made this attachment or whatever that didn't exist right now. So it was just combining things. I could see that. So I relate to somebody like that. So that would be cool to – like do, do, do they see things and say like how did they come yeah. about this it was yeah. a skill. So um, what would your perfect training day look like? place, who with, is it alone by yourself? What sport are you working on a behavior or maybe you already live it because every day you get to do what you want to go do.
1: <laughs> I kind of already live it. Yeah. I feel like I'm pretty lucky to say something like that. Uh, I think I've had some perfect training days down here in the last yeah. month. Um, and so that included um, a dog that I enjoyed um, You know, in that moment. Um, enough people that are better than me. Um, yep. The thing that I'm aiming at that was important. Um, some people I was better than, mm-hmm. so I can take and yeah. give. it yep. feels nice. Yep, beautiful weather. Some open minds, some mm-hmm. good food, mm-hmm. absolutely good training, some purpose. Yeah, some goals. Yeah, you know, that were reached. Maybe mm-hmm. the only thing missing was my wife wasn't here, but she got to be here <laughs> for the last couple. Yeah, so. Um, <clears throat> and I think back, so that was it. Um, I think back to, uh, and I think the, a community was nice about that. But then another perfect training day um, would be by myself, it involved nature being outside. I'm thinking back to when I was at the Tom Rose School, and this wasn't the perfect day. It just describes what one would be for me. And I've had many of them. I was alone, it was an early morning, I was doing tracking. I went out and laid three tracks. I'd moved from the school to Tom Rose's ranch because he had a cabin there and him and I had developed a relationship. He said, you could rent that. I was doing a bunch of tracking work. There was a 20 minute drive between the school and there. So I just lived out there so I could do that. I'd wake up in the morning, lay through tracks, roll a cigarette, just one at the time. Mm-hmm. It's just part of a routine. Mm-hmm. Um, smoke it and then I'd go run. My dog, had 270 acres, just north of High Ridge. There's cattle out there, but they would move them around. So we would track on the fields that the cattle weren't on at the moment. And then I would go do obedience training on the Schützen field and I would maybe jump on a horse. He had these Pasafena horses and I could ride them because they were mostly safe. And then he had water features, so some streams and a lake. And you could go swim your dog, make a nice meal. And and that was solitary time for me and I really enjoyed that. The place that um, the moments I still find right now where that feel a little magical in training are often by myself so yeah i get it yeah i mean those are it's kind of the spots i do it for it's lovely to have a community of people of course that's been the that's been a big um, theme of me being down here just this time is how strong uh, the community feels and how how much i like individuals that are in it yeah it's 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 truly
0: both aspects growing and developing on your own Mm getting those moments of solitude and just self-reflection and just connecting with the animal you're working with. That's a beautiful thing. And then the community aspect of training with others that you're on the same page with, like Mm -hmm. you don't even, you can communicate without saying a word with each other, especially when it's multiple things happening, like decoy work and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, handling, um, the,
1: uh, I, those are moments that are just amazing yeah. and you yeah. want to hang out with them like outside of the dog train yeah. like, push each other to be uh-huh. know, better in life just as you do when you're doing yeah. your dog all talking. these great conversations we have in a cafe sure Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, the community is important like it takes a village probably in anything yes know, that you're doing and especially if you know if I'm aiming at the sport it takes a village and that's oh. been kind of something missing in the last five six years for, me. for sure for sure Forrest Mickey thank you <laughs> for yeah.
0: coming on here sharing these stories with us yeah. thank you for uh motivating me and the conversations that we have uh to do things differently validate things i feel sharing things with you cognition was has been fun to show you that world i enjoyed that yeah and and knowing that we'll connect deeply going forward in the future um There'll be lots of these kind of, I'm sure, conversations we'll have for our different audiences, because I think some people will benefit from uh, just different points of view. So thank you for coming on. Thanks, Cameron. This was lovely.
1: Hell yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Cue theme.